the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And Welcome once again to a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the podcast that is dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic and beloved beverages, sake and shochu. Seeing as how we are recording in the past this week, we are indeed broadcasting from our usual location at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular hosts here on the show. But you will actually be hearing relatively little from me this week as we finish off our Know Your Host series in its fourth and final installment. Beginning this past October, we've been pulling aside our team of hosts and production team for more personal interviews in hopes of providing insight into the people and their motivations uh, in and around the world of sake, as well as this show, Sake on Air. If you missed any of our previous installments, you can go ahead and check out episodes 27, 32, and 34 to get to know the rest of our team. This week, we have two of what we'd like to consider to be pretty special guests. First, we kick things off with Rebecca Wilson-Lai, the industry's behind-the-scenes superwoman and director of international marketing and PR for Japan Craft Sake Company. Following her is an interview with a gentleman that needs little introduction in the world of sake, Mr. John Gauntner. First up, I interview Rebecca, where we discuss her journey from New Zealand to the Izu Peninsula and how her time in Shizuoka proved to be the real formative experience that shaped her future. We also discuss how a secret life working as a sake and food guide led to her developing and hosting sake seminars and products together with Takashi Murakami, her becoming an IWC judge, her different philosophies on sake tasting, how she also went on to end up in her current critically important role uh, professionally, working together with Mr. Hidetoshi Nakata, and what it means to have the commitment and the responsibilities associated with being a player that really works in support of the industry as a whole. So with that, let's go ahead and jump right in to our discussion with Rebecca wilson Lai. Yeah, Rebecca, welcome back. Hi. Welcome back to the island. Thank you. So... I want you to talk about you today. Um, and so where are you now? What are you doing? It's um, pretty hard to put that into a soundbite. Um, well, uh, simply put, I work at Japan Craft Sake Company, which is a company established by Hidetoshi Nakata to elevate awareness of sake culture and create opportunities for breweries within and outside Japan. I'm the head of international marketing and PR, which it describes my meshi, my business card, but in terms of my daily job, it's possibly a little bit misleading. What I mainly do with my job is we are working to address one of the fundamental problems, I would say, in the sake industry, which is that we've got the most amazing sake being produced in Japan at this time with brewers who are enormously talented creating consistently fabulous sake and overseas and in Japan we have 
communities and experts who love and enjoy sake and are trying to create interesting ways for new audiences, new consumers to engage and enjoy sake. And everything is set. We have the people in Japan and overseas who are amazing advocates for sake. We have the product. We have the producers who are creating the incredible beverage that we all enjoy. What is missing is the infrastructure to get sake to particularly overseas consumers in its optimal condition. So we're talking about really unglamorous stuff like the temperature of the trucks taking the sake from the brewery to the port, the temperature of the container, how long that container is in customs and what temperature it's in, then how that container gets to the distributor on the other side's warehouse, what temperature that um, warehouse is, then how that is delivered to the restaurant or the end consumer. If it's at a retail store, is it refrigerated? Is anyone checking? Because what I think one of the biggest misconceptions about sake is, is that while it looks like a distilled beverage, it behaves very much like a craft beer and it needs a lot of support to get to faraway markets. So that's what I do. I spend a lot of time in refrigerators with my um, infrared temperature scanner trying to create a traceable temperature controlled export system that will ensure that the beautiful sake that is produced at the brewery um, can be enjoyed and celebrated in the consumer's glass as the brewer intended it to be. What do you? What is your perception of the awareness around that, around the handling of sake as a product? I've got to say that this is not just an international conversation because even in Japan, there is not really a lot of awareness about how sake needs to be supported in terms of temperature and handling um, in order to maintain its optimum condition. But overseas, you know, there is not a lot of awareness because when I go to markets and sake, I see, you know, unpasteurized sake that's been stored and is gathering dust on a shelf um, and is still for sale and is being served to people and people are assuming that that damaged sake is actually what that sake is supposed to taste like which is heartbreaking for me because I know what that sake tastes like in its optimal condition we can't be judgmental but what we have to do is how can we educate all of these important parts along the chain to ensure that we are taking care of sake correctly so as you can imagine my job involves a lot of education do you enjoy education is that something that well, yes. You know what? I had a really funny relationship with teaching because I'm the daughter of two teachers. As you could imagine, growing up, the last thing I wanted to be was a teacher. But um, that's actually part of my Japan story because I originally was a journalist working in the book industry. But after a while, I was starting to get frustrated that all of the literature that I was reading about, all of the great books that I was devouring every day were set in locations and places with people that I could never see. So I got to wonder how can I 
go to these landscapes. And that's when, oh, I'll become an English teacher mm-hmm. came into mind. And I ended up where I am here in Japan. The reason that I chose Japan for teaching was because of a book my mum gave me, which was The Golden Pavilion by uh, Yukio Mishima. And it's an intense book, but it's beautifully written. And the intensity of the language and the imagery that he creates was just so captivating. I also wanted to see The Golden Pavilion. A lot of the work that you do now is very much just tied to sake, and sake is sort of at the forefront, but a lot of that involves food at all different levels. How did your relationship with food when you are younger, do you feel like that primed you for your experiences there? Or? Well, my family were hippies originally. You know, my earliest memories, we were hippies, so we grew our own food. Organic before the branding happened. Um so we were we were deep in hippiedom. We grew a lot of our own fruit and vegetables. So food was always something that was very precious to us and we valued and we ate well. We were poor, but we ate really well. At my father's house, we also always had a table wine. So there was always a, a bottle of wine on the table. Alcohol was something that was enjoyed with food and it wasn't something that you, you know, you guzzled. It was, an, it was an enhancer of a meal and not something that you had separately. But to tell you the truth, it really wasn't until I came to Japan that my relationship with food got healthy. And that's a, a long story that we don't need to go down. But, you know, there are pressures on women, you know, when we're young. And there's a lot of socialization about what we should and we shouldn't look like and that creates all sorts of complications for people and also I was I've got a lot of food allergies um, and amongst that so there were some complications so food was always a little bit in the hard box for me it was something that I reacted to I often felt sick Um, I often got sick Um, and it wasn't yeah it wasn't life enhancing but then when I came to Japan and I arrived in Izuhanto Shizuoka, which is now my adopted hometown. Um, thank goodness I arrived in the countryside and not in a big city centre because I was able to immediately connect with a local community. Um, and I'm so thankful for that. And I got to see real life Japan, not the busy metropolis life, um, the segmented individual life of people who live here, but the community family-based life, um, the connection to the seasons and sense of belonging in a place uh, was really an important experience for me. And so I think my first meal was probably something like kimmerai mitsuke or golden eye snapper that's simmered in a sweet soy sauce. Amazing. And, of course, um, sake. So at my welcoming party, I actually had It was week one, basically straight off the 747. I had the sake that changed my life. And my first experience was an experience of delicious regional sake. And that became what inspired me to travel to other regions where I tried the regional foods and tried the regional sake and worked up that relationship 
food and the sake of an area have had a long history. They've been growing and evolving together long before we were even a thought in our parents' mind. And their relationship is so interesting. So my sake exploration, trying to find more amazing sake, also just naturally became an exploration of the local cuisines of the areas I went to. And it really made me understand that if I travel through sake, I can travel through Japanese culture. And the more that I traveled and the more that I ate and experienced and enjoyed, the more healthy I became. I felt stronger. I felt better in myself. I had more energy than I'd ever had. I was being nurtured by incredible food. And I was being comforted by wonderful sake. And being healthy, being strong, I really felt like I had entered into a world that was life-enhancing. And now I am fortunate enough that I'm continuing this journey and enjoying doing the same thing on an international stage. So th those travels and that sort of exploration in those different regions, get into the food and the local culture and engaging in that with the people, that was something that you were doing proactively before you were, quote unquote, involved in the sake industry. That was something that was sort of your own personal. Week one, as I said, fell in love with sake, yeah. wanted to get, get more of that. Yeah. The only thing I could do was find out places to drink mm -hmm. it. Um, I memorized the hiragana and katakana alphabets, which are two of the basic um, alphabets of the Japanese writing system. And I heard that when you go to izakayas with picture menus, they would have the sake and they often have the prefecture listed. So there was no way I was going to be able to read the sake on the menu. So I just memorized the kanji of all of the prefectures in Japan so I could find Shizuoka on a sake menu. So really, week one, month one, that was happening. And, you know, I was living in the countryside. My neighbors were frogs and on the left and ducks on my right. And in front of behind of me, I had strawberry fields. So um, there wasn't a lot going on at night. So I would save my money. I would research during the week. Um, and on the weekends, I would get on a local train. Uh, we were quite close to the Tokaido line. And I would just slip up and down the country as I could. Um, usually stay in a cheap like, backpackers or a um, business hotel for one night. And that was what I pretty much did consistently for six, seven years. What, when was that period time-wise? We were talking 2000... 2000, uh, 2005. 2008 or so, I'm, I moved to Tokyo. But I was still getting out of town. Um, but during the week, I was doing much more exploration down dark alleys of yeah. places where I could drink good sake. Um, but yeah, so it was very much my education. Yeah. I came to, that was probably my university, my sake university. Yeah. So I'm curious then, so then what was going from a proactive self-educator to having the opportunity to do something in a, professional context in relation in relation to sake what was that initial opportunity and where did how did that come about well I was still teaching and I was moonlighting as a gourmet 
Saka guide. So right as soon as I had stepped up my own company called Itchy for the Michi, which is kind of a bit of an old man's joke, you know, like one for the road in Japanese. And it was, I set up the company so that I could share my sake world with people um, because I'd been to some of the touristy kind of experiences in Tokyo. I was like, whoa, that's not my sake world. Oh, So I wanted to create experiences that were like my experience, wonderful, rich, life-enhancing, delicious, food-driven, sake-fueled um, experiences. So I had developed a pretty good Rolodex of food connections. And this is before the foodie boom started. So, you know, I was going back to su- going to Sushi Saito when he was still in a basement car park before the three mission stars came, you know. Um, so I would take foreign guests, often chefs, I would take them around and, exper- and introduce them to sake through food. People were like me when they had their first taste of really good sake. I saw people having an epiphany and immediately there was a flood of questions. And I could answer the questions based on the information that I've gathered through my time and my personal um, conversations with brewers and just, you know, absorbing information. But I realized that I needed to actually do some formal training um, because what I was giving them was guidance, but I needed to double check that I understood my stuff. So... It was around about maybe eight years ago, that was seven years ago, I decided to actually do formal training and there was only one option for me. My first month in Japan, not long after that first sip, I was looking for whatever help I could get. And some guy called John Gautner mm-hmm. had written a book called The Sake Handbook. Mm-hmm. And I got on a local train, I went to Tokyo and I bought it from um, Kinokuniya and I used that book so much and gave away so many of those books. John actually had to sign, I think, my sixth version of it, so I stopped giving them away. <laughs> but there was there was only one logical option for me was to do John Gartner's course and to study with him. And so I did his uh, course in Tokyo, and it confirmed that I had understood correctly. It also ironed out some difficult concepts that were maybe more difficult for me to understand in Japanese, but learning about them in English, I was like, ah, oh, Right, that's what it is, great. And it also um, made me determined to improve and to deepen my knowledge because I felt like there was still more that we needed to share at an an educational level about sake than just the techniques and the methods and the history. There was another conversation there, and that's the stories the interwoven fabric of Japanese culture, if you start to pull apart the warp and weave of it, there's ceramics, there's art, there's, you know, there's so many mediums, uh, there's religion, there's, there's literature, there's science. One of those strands is sake. Sake is so interwoven within Japan's rich tapestry that I really feel that education on an educational level, we need to be sharing that story in some way. Um, so I did the second course and got some more skills and then embarked on doing my own education. And that's when our story gets quite colourful. 
I yeah. think. Yeah. So then what was once at that point then your official quote yeah, unquote? Yeah, people started to listen to me, babe. Right? I, I had a piece it's of paper it's and funny, suddenly it's people funny. started to what listen to me. Uh, what a difference a uh, piece of paper makes. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Right? And so then you get that piece of paper. Then who? I got the piece of it, paper. Who was it that gave you the opportunity to then take that piece of paper and put it to use in some other Randomly, capacity? some very tall men from Norway... Uh, so uh, there was a group of very progressive, innovative guys who own a cafe in Oslo called Fuglen, opened up their Tokyo store. And it's all about transparency. It's a third wave coffee-driven um, cafe, old world, new world cocktails. It's a hipster cafe. Um, and they really wanted to make sure that um, Fuglen Tokyo and was able to immerse in Tokyo by developing um, some unique Japanese cultural elements within the cafe. And so one of them was sake. I became their sake advisor and created seasonal menus for them and taught their team. And then through that relationship, they introduced me to an artist called Takashi Murakami, Japan's possibly most famous pop artists. And... Uh, the guys from Fuglin were designing his uh, concept cafe um, at Nakano Broadway, where his galleries are. And at the opening for the opening party, um, they wanted to serve sake. And so I created a concept tasting uh, menu based on the bar zingaro or the hitari zingaro um, concept. And at the opening, I met Rakami-san and told him about the sake that I'd selected and the reasons why. It was all new generation, um, young, innovative, pushing the boundaries, going to the next level, kind of radical um, brewers. Um, and I, I told him about this radical movement, this this rebirth in sake, this generational shift that we were bearing witness to and what an exciting time it was to be in alive at this moment in time to see this revaluing of sake and you could see Murakami-san's eyes just lighting up like he had no idea and you know it was just such a different genre to art and you know he's a bit of a radical he really was interested to learn more um but he doesn't drink (laughs) so um he asked me to do seminars um at to educate both Japanese and international customers about sake culture. And so I did my first seminar, which was a sense of place, which is about regionality and sake. And that was, for me, one of those really huge milestones to be able to teach people in my way, with my story, was based on my experience, but knowing that my knowledge was correct as well was really important. I wanted it to be interactive. I wanted it to be informal. I wanted it to be stylish. I wanted it to be delicious. So we had masses of cheese plates heaving with cheese um, and other delicious bits and pieces for people to enjoy as they were listening. I wanted people to feel like they were being nourished with information, with good food and with sake and an environment that reflected who they were in this modern life. 
And so now you're in a position where you're down doing a lot of the nitty gritty. You're kind of, you know, doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And so I'm curious sort of what that transition was like and sort of what going from holding regular classes um, that were based in sort of your own ethos, I guess you could say, and then ending up in a place where you have access to more people, places, and possibilities. How did you end up there and sort of what were the chance encounters or discoveries or things that along the way that sort of brought you there? Into Japan Craft Soccer Company? Into Craft Soccer Company, yeah. Um, well, I guess through my activities, I started to, you know, there are a, f- a few you know, media, article, media articles are written about mm-hmm. me and, um, you know, there was some TV um, programs and things. And um, I think one thing, people maybe don't know about me is you probably wouldn't think so if you looked at my social media or if you heard my job. I really am reluctant to step forward into promoting myself in the sake community because my satisfaction is standing behind the brewers and pushing them into the spotlight. But I started bumping into uh, Nakata-san at events and, you know, because... Going to an events is an important way of keeping your um, palette up to date with what's going on in the community and seeing where you know, there's so many changes happening um, in the brewery scene each year within breweries themselves. Um, you know, there could be a, a, a change of machinery or a koji room is rebuilt and suddenly the, the flavor changes, you know. So you've got to keep your palette in. You've got to keep going to the brewery um, events and um, tasting. And so that's what he was, was doing. You know, Nakata-san was very diligent about making sure he's up to date with what's happening um, in the market. And I suppose we just kept on seeing each other at places and, um, you know, we started talking and there were some commonalities with what we are both trying to achieve in very different ways. But we were both sort of on the outside doing something that was very much driven by ourselves um, but we were wanting to address what we saw as a gap in the market, which is exploring and um, expanding awareness of sake culture um, and making branding opportunities for individual breweries was something that's really important. So I joined the company, and um, that's a reflection of Nakata-san's um, innovative critical thinking, I suppose, that he would put a, a woman from New Zealand in charge of um, such an important um, department in his company, but there I am. And I think this was also a one of those significant milestones in my story because I immediately came up to the reality of I support the sake industry. I support every brewery in the country. And what I've been doing up until what I've been doing up until that point was great for me. It was almost like an extension of a hobby. It was me enjoying life through my passion for sake and allowing other people to enjoy it. But when it became a profession, it got real. And I needed to shift my thinking. I was a sake maniac. I love sake deep into it. But not everyone knows sake. In fact, most people know zero. And I now had to, for the benefit of our common goals... And for the, you know, our mission to elevate awareness of sake and to create a long and sustainable recovery in the sake market, I had to think like someone who knew zero. Because I know when I've had done an event 
and I've been so into a sake. I've been so into it and the story was great. And I've got all these incredible an- anecdotes to share with people and I can see the front row in front of me just like blinking and sort of wriggling their nose and they're not loving it. And those are the moments where I got lost in my geekiness. I was loving the backstory that I knew, but in the glass, for someone who knew nothing about sake, that was maybe a really difficult sake for them to approach. But now they're intimidated because I'm saying this is great and they're not there yet. So as a sake, uh, someone who's promoting sake and creating opportunities for people to enter the sake world, because my goodness, we need more people in it, um, I have to make the door wide. So I really had to change the way I thought. This isn't a hobby anymore. We have to improve the industry. And if we keep on trying to make initiatives that are focused on converting, creating events that are preaching to the converted, people who already know sake, or just not adapting our style, keeping the style that suits us and is comfortable for us, we're never going to widen that door. So at Craft Sake Week, which is... Uh, which has gone on to become the biggest sake culture event in um, the world. We started it in 2016 to basically be that base platform for people to start their sake journeys from. We were aiming that event at people who knew nothing about sake, not the sake geeks. So, you know, there were some grumbles in the audience, I must say. Some of my friends were like, oh, all of the selections, like really easy to drink or nice to drink or really beautiful. Well, you're only saying positive things, so I'm not quite sure why people are complaining. What they're looking for was the challenging, the rough, the obscure stuff. But they've got access to that. They know how to get to those bars and access that sake. But the people who don't know anything about sake need an environment where they can come and have their sake at the event. So we want to create 10 opportunities, 10 brewery opportunities every day for people to have that wow moment. And sake, you know, craft sake week is an opportunity for people who know nothing to come and have a really elevated sake culture-driven experience. And um, we're hoping that it gets people onto the sake bridge. You know, that first drink, like with me, that changed my life, they could have it at craft sake week. And I'm told it does. Many times a day, I'm told it does. And it gets people to change their percep- perspe- perspectives and perceptions of what sake is. Japanese and foreigners alike. And so Craft Sake Week is about widening that door and creating opportunities for more people to engage with sake and find a sake that suits them and for the brewers to connect with them too. And you brought up a really interesting point that it's so easy to find joy in something that you can just drown yourself in subjectively. It's just, you you know, get wrapped up in your own world. But when you have to step back and then find joy in that same thing at an objective level, you have to find something about it that is universal, you know, in, and so what I'm curious and craft sake week is a really fantastic platform for that. I'm curious sort of what going through the process, when you look at, what's this event going to look like? Do you have tick boxes that you go down that say, we have to have this, we have to have this? So the visuals are designed by an architect in collaboration with Nakata-san. Um, the event must be multifaceted. It, it, 
involves opportunities to experience a wide range of exquisite food um, so that people can open their minds to what sake can pair with. So it's not just Japanese food. We have French, we have Italian. Uh, this year we had five days of Asian food from you know Singapore, Thailand, Chinese, Vietnamese, um, and then European cuisine was also the one we did for the next five days. But we really want to create an opportunity for people to expand their their minds and expand their experience and inspire them to keep exploring. So food is very important. But then there's also the crafts, you know, the, the glassware, the ceramic options, um, the storage solutions. You know, minus five degree storage is an important part of keeping sake in its um, optimum condition. So we have, you know, um, a display here explaining um, the sake seller that Nakata-san has um, helped design. And then, of course, there's music and all of those other things. But the brewing, um, we usually have over 300 sake on the long list. I do a long list based on region. And, you know, during the year, we're, we're, we're tasting, we're going to events, we're remembering the names and earmarking brands that we haven't showcased yet that we want to showcase because the idea is not to have the same 100 and, you know, 100 and 110 breweries each year it's to create as many opportunities for the 1,300 breweries in the country to elevate their profile um, so we taste, we taste and we taste and the selection is based on taste because that is the customer's experience I want to talk about taste uh, for a little bit because I know you do a fair bit of that um, for different competitions and things like that as well. And I'm curious sort of what you find or in the process of, of tasting and trying sake is what it is you look for and the things that you find to be unique and exciting to the experience of tasting in sake? Um, I was really intimidated. I remember when I first started doing IWC sake division um, judging in, uh, about five years ago in London. Oh my gosh, was I intimidated, you know. These are professional tasters, you know, people from the wine world that swirled like masters. And I was so lacking in confidence. Uh, the first year was really tough for me, I've got to say, with, with tasting um, and being able to share what I was talking about because I was second guessing myself. The second year it got better because I, I knew that I knew what I was tasting. I just had to commit. I just had to commit by saying it, you know, and it got easier. One, one thing I really enjoy when I'm tasting sake is I love approaching a sake where the promise on the nose delivers on the mouth. I love that, um, the cohesion between a well-crafted sake and that the, the a really well-crafted sake will promise what is waiting for you in the glass and then deliver it and it just makes it even better you'll come across a lot of sakes where there's a big disconnect between the nose and the palate. And those are bracing, the ones that aren't comfortable to drink. It's not that they're bad, but I find, find they can be off kilter. And in pairings with food, they can be brilliant. But if I'm just doing a pure tasting, I'm looking for a really well-composed nose, um, a really um, well-balanced palate. It doesn't have to be perfect acidity and sweetness and umami and um, astringency and balance. You know, there can be some, you know, some sharp edges or some juicy acidity or um, 
a, a citric-like acidity that's quite piquant. That's fine if that's what the overall expression lends itself to. Um, but usually, yeah, the thing I'm looking for usually is that cohesion point, that aroma and the flavour and everything's like humming. And that's when I find a sake that, when I find a sake like that, I go, oh. Just to kind of wrap up here, uh, I, I don't, I, the nature of your work, I was, the things we've really only touched on, probably a fraction of the things that you actually have hands in at the moment. Um, I sort of, I don't know, I sort of envision you as putting on this like a giant music festival and you're back there like um, rolling up mic chords and at the same time you're like doing lights and like doing sound at the same time. They don't necessarily see you moving there, but you're doing some of the stuff that looks really cool that everybody gets to see, but then you're also, you know, packing up all the stuff and lugging it in the trucks at the end when everybody's done. And everybody's you're usually right near me like somewhere, that. Justin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, and but you get, and you also, both, not just with sake, but again with food and things like that, you're seeing a level of diversity and expression and scale that I think a lot of people don't necessarily get the opportunity to see. And I'm just curious what sort of things right now have you excited? What's driving you right now? Well, for me, the sake journey is a lifetime journey. Um, it's consumed me, but I must say that this new chapter or this new station of my journey has really um, got me excited. The you know, people always, and for years, people were coming to me asking me about the foreign sake market. Oh, I had no idea. I was in Japan the whole time. So don't ask me about what foreigners are drinking overseas. I'm in Japan 24-7. So going overseas and seeing where sake is and where sake is at and how we need to improve and how we need to solve issues within the um, system has really got a fire in my belly again. Um, it keeps me motivated. It keeps me excited because there's so much to do. I don't know, you see, I just, I'm on the sake journey, but it changes so much. The world of sake is changing so much. Since I started drinking sake to where I am now, sake has changed so much. The way we enjoy sake has changed so much. The food and the culture surrounding it has changed so much. I, I'm so consumed by it that, and it's so, it evolves and changes and morphs. I'm just running to keep up with this incredible world. Um, but I'm trying to have more balance. That's something I'm really working on more this year. Um, I'm trying to have more balance in my life and not working so insanely hard. But I think um, I'm really getting into traveling again and exploring cultures. And I'm really fascinated with um, like the connection between tea and sake and food. That's something that's really interesting because a lot of people can't drink. So looking into other fermented beverages um, that um, complement you know, the sake world is something I'm interested in. Fermentation continues to fascinate me. But I don't know. I just want to keep enjoying every moment that I am fortunate enough to be in this community. Awesome. Rebecca, thank you so much. You're welcome. That it was, was fun, fun talking to you. That was nice to hear. <laughs> well, it's over and out for me, so uh, passing the baton on to um, the next team member. Whoever's up next, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pass the baton here and we'll I hope call the listeners are still awake. If not, I might be better than that Calm app. <laughs> I hopefully managed to put you to sleep. <laughs> 
Anyway, thanks for listening. Lovely. Yeah, thanks so much. That was fun. Next up, we bring you the sake guy, Mr. John Gauntner. John probably needs a little introduction for most of our listeners. For those of you not familiar, a quick internet search will probably tell you why his name is more or less synonymous with the beverage. Seen as how John has been interviewed up and down by industry people countless times over the past 20 years or so, this week we decided to place our man behind the scenes, who's usually in charge of our audio, Mr. Frank Walter, into the interviewer's chair. His insatiable interest in food, beverage, and related curiosities in general, along with his ability to be a few steps removed from the larger industry, really resulted in a fun, casual, but also insightful and engaging interview. Inquiring into John's strangest experiences across his sake journey, to attempting to pry into the nature of his sake seller at home and his associated sipping habits, as well as sorting out why sake is the jam band of alcoholic beverages. All of this, together with a lot of other personal anecdotes, you wind up with a lot of great industry tidbits tucked in throughout as well. So with that, off we go with Mr. John Gauntner. Uh, I'm Frank, and today I'm going to be interviewing John Gauntner. Hi, John. Hi, Frank. How are you? Doing all right. How are you? I'm well. Thank you very much. Excellent. So you have been doing things with sake since, like you said, on our very first program since 1989? Well, I got to Japan in 1988, and I started drinking sake on January 1st, 1989. Okay. (laughs) But I didn't do anything professionally with sake until about 93 or 94. What was that like? Like starting in the sake business in the 90s because that's like right after the bubble kind of started to go down and you're fairly new in japan you've been here for about three or four years well i got here in 88 and so i'd say 93 is when i actually started working with sake and the level at which i was working with it was i was just writing newspaper columns so i I wrote something for the japan times one article and then they asked me to write a column so i was writing a column twice a month uh, but if you're writing publicly for a newspaper, you can't make stuff up, you can't mm-hmm. lie, and you can't repeat yourself. So I had to go out and do a lot of studying and learning a lot about sake. And I found that I really, really, the more I studied, the more into it I got, the more I enjoyed it. So I'd visit breweries, I would get involved in, in tastings and things like that. Uh, and there wasn't anything difficult about it, really. Um, for example, I didn't like step into the industry and say, okay, guys, I'm here. <laughs> uh-huh. I just quietly, you know, humbly went about tasting and asking a lot of questions and garnered enough to write a column every two weeks and when doing that. Um, led to a book, led to another thing. So there wasn't anything difficult about it. It was actually a very, very natural flow, to be honest with you. Oh, cool. So did you approach, so when you wrote the book, was that something like somebody was like, please write us a book? That's exactly it? how it happened. I mean, the whole thing came to me. Oh, really? Yeah. So... I got into sake, and I got way into sake, and I got way into sake, but I never thought I'd make it my job. It was the first, furthest thing from my mind. Uh, but I met a guy that worked at the Japan Times, um, and he, uh, we were talking one night and drinking, and some sake came around. It was real cheap. He's like, you want some sake? I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. He's like, what, you don't like sake? I'm like, I love it. That's why I'm not drinking that. Uh, and then he's like, it's all the same. And I'm like, no. So we started talking about it, and as we went on in the conversation, he's like, you should write something for us. I'm like, oh, I could probably write a call, you know, uh, something for you. Uh, and so I wrote, uh, I wrote something like 5,000 words, figuring they, they cut it down to about like, you know, 800. Yeah. But I went back and I'm like, this is good. We want more for this piece. <laughs> and oh, so wow. it was a bigger, oh, wow. a bigger piece than that. 
And then, great, I'm done. But then they contacted me and says, well, actually, we'd like you to write a column for us. I'm like, God, wow, okay, I could do that. Uh, and I was freelance at the time, right? I didn't mm-hmm. work for that company. I was just writing those columns for them. A book publisher saw that column and came to me and said, oh, would you wow. write a book for us? This is I could probably figure out how to do that as well. Uh, and then, uh, uh, thanks to former Vice President Al Gore, the internet was born. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. uh, someone said, dude, you should have a, have a website. I'll make one for you. I'm like, uh, all right, go ahead. So all of a sudden I had a website now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody, another book publisher saw that website and they asked me to write a book for them as well. It was a different book. That was my second book. So one thing just led to another. You have three books? Oh, there's more than that. It depends how you count them. Okay. So there's one that's in two languages. There's one that's in Japanese translated by my wife. There's one that is only in ebook form. But okay. it's got an ISBN number. Yeah. And then there's four others that are actually published and in physical form, although some of them are out of print. So it's hard to count them, wow. actually. But okay. I usually wow. say about half a dozen. <laughs> okay. So what was, the, what was the experience writing a book in Japanese? I didn't do it. Oh. I, mean, I could write it in Japanese and have them spend a year fixing it. Or I could mm-hmm. write it in English and let my wife translate it. Okay. She knows me very well. Yeah. And she would be able to understand my, my feelings about something and incorporate them into natural Japanese. And that's the way we did it. Oh, that's super cool. Is she also into sake like you are into sake? She is or? now. She's now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she enjoys it too. Yeah. And do you have any kids? Yeah, I've got a, a senior in high school and a freshman in high school. Oh. So a 17-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter. And they live in Japan or? No, they were born in Japan and lived here until five or six years ago, at which point we decided to put them into school in the United States because they were just going through standard Japanese schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I only spoke English with them uh, and still do, but their English was far be- behind their peers. Oh, really? At that time. So we put them in school in the United States six years ago. They're in their sixth school year now. Okay. Uh, and it, it, we mission accomplished. Oh, awesome. They're as close to perfectly bilingual as they're going to get. And they'll probably both be coming back to school in Japan next year. Oh, my really? My son will probably oh, go to wow. college here, and my daughter will probably go to high school here. Is your wife in America then? Yeah, or? my wife and kids are in the United States right now, oh. which is why I'm half and half. Oh, I see. So currently, I'm very close to half and half mm-hmm. at the United States and Japan. Okay. What, uh, this is kind of maybe a weird question, but like, does sake ever get boring? Like, do you ever want something else? Or like, when you're feeling like, ah, oh, like, this is kind of the same old, same old, like, what am I, what do I got, what do I got to go look for to go find something new? I would say that sake itself doesn't ever get boring, but sometimes the situations or venues within which I'll enjoy it or drink it can get boring. So if I drink like sake every night at home, I'll get bored. But I can just rekindle the flame by going to a good sake pub. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Find something I haven't had before, you know. Are there things that you haven't had before? Oh, yes. There's 1,200 sake breweries in Japan, right? I would say on the average, 20 products per brewery. Very, very rough calculation. 24,000 products. Okay. <laughs> I'm at 23,562. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I... Uh, so there's still many. And again, people come out with new brands and new products all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's always interesting. It's keeping me guessing constantly. Do you want to go to every single brewery? I'd like to go as many as I can. That's the thing I do that I enjoy the most. More than anything else I do is visiting breweries. Because they say sakayabandu. There's 10,000 ways to brew sake, which means there's a million. Which means everybody's doing the same thing, but they're doing it just a little bit differently. And it's fascinating. So, have, have you ever brewed sake before? or Just for several days at a time for a few pops. Okay. Yeah. Just, you know, three days here, three days there. That's it. Okay. Is there anything, like, from now that you're very excited about? Yeah, like, there's a lot, really. I mean, if you look at movements in the sake industry, I see younger brewers moving back toward traditional styles 
and toward more effective and creative marketing. Mm -hmm. So I think the industry suffered from bad marketing for decades. And they didn't really need to, right? It was mostly consumed by the local neighborhood people and, and uh, they didn't really need to market very well. Mm -hmm. And now they do. Um, and I think the younger generation is getting very, very good at marketing with their own presence at events, with, with colorful labels, with making the most out of particular points that they used in, in the brewing process. Um, so I think that's really cool. On top of that, I see a lot of sake, not all, but a lot of sake, returning to center, moving back towards traditional styles a little bit. Okay. There was a couple of decades there when everything smelled like licorice and, mm -hmm. and just wild, lively acidity and all kinds of stuff. And all those things have their place. But I think the main gist or thrust of sake has been the same way for about a thousand years for a reason. And I'm kind of hopeful or excited to see how a lot of sake, not all of it, but a lot of it, has moved back toward slightly traditional styles um, and less ostentatious styles mm -hmm. uh, because I think that's, that's it's appealing to most people. I think that brewers will market and sell their sake better if they like what it is that they're making. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that people move back towards these slightly more traditional trends or styles or thrusts is because they liked it better. And I think that says a lot. So you're not really like a fan of... Because I know like in America... Sake seems to be going in a whole different direction. Like I think I think I heard something about like adding hops to sake. Oh, that's just that's like that. not no. That I don't even I don't even don't I don't dignify same. that. Okay, so that's like not even that's not even sake. It's not in my radar. You're right. It's yeah. something entirely different. Right, right. I mean, I do think that a lot of Americans like a lot of very ostentatious sake, mm -hmm. right? But I think Americans in particular are like that about a lot of things. I mean, they took traditional at the old world red wines and they just crank the fruit out, out out the top it really yeah. really made them very very powerful and, and fruity and, and, and strong in flavor and i should say we but we americans also did the same thing with traditional you took these traditional british and german styles of beer and then just crank the hop up hops up right yeah or uh, or, or or the malt flavor we tend to like big and easy to understand flavors uh, and i think the same thing is being shown with sake there's nothing wrong with aromatic daiginju i mean my personal preferences these days and again, I'm older, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, tend to go towards more subtle and understated sake. But there's nothing wrong with the ostentatious styles at all. But I would say that those are more popular uh, overseas. So the, like for Japanese companies who want to expand overseas, maybe you'd recommend them to follow that? Or you'd rather kind of like traditionalist all around? Like no, I think them? they have to do what sells, of course. Uh, and I think that the preferences of other cultures and people in other countries will, will go its own course. I don't think we should try and dictate that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if the Daiginjo sells well, that's great because at least people are drinking sake and not something else. Okay. And then people will naturally branch off into some direction. Maybe, maybe not. They may stick with the fruity styles, and that's fine. Or they may, like I did, find themselves as they get older, finding uh, themselves appreciating more subtle styles, uh, understated styles, but maybe not. Mm -hmm. I think a more concise answer to your question is that People in other countries will naturally migrate towards uh, different styles as they get more experience with sake. And I don't think we can or should try to dictate that. That makes sense. Does that mean, because I know you also, you teach a lot, right? Because you teach in Japan and then you also teach in America. I do. Yeah, I do a lot of seminars on a lot of levels and I do a lot of coursework as well. How much of a difference is there between like your classes in Japan versus your classes in the States? Well, they are not choosing the sake that they enjoy or like in those courses, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I don't choose things because the brand is good or because it's this kind of a foodiness or that kind of a style. Uh, when I run my course, we'll taste about 85 sake across two and a half days. But everything's selected for a very specific purpose. In other words, if we're talking about the various grades, mm -hmm. it's a very typical quintessential example or representation of those grades. Not because it tastes good. Oh, <laughs> I see. Okay. Which hopefully it does. But yeah. uh, And if we're talking about rices, I'll, I'll pick a sake that is a great representation of each one of the rices that we're tasting through. Same with yeasts or mature sake or Yamaha Kimoto styles. So people aren't really there to find their preferences. They're there to find out if I make sake with this rice, what does it taste like or could it taste like? If I use this yeast, what kind of aromas would that typically yield, uh, lead to? Uh, so I really don't have a chance to see what people like or ask them what they like during the courses. Mm. So it's more it's very much like giving them a baseline exactly. to build The whole point is for them to know what different sake tastes like so they can find out what they like after that. No one should be able to teach them any, anything more after that. Okay. I have an image of you with like a really big rolly bag like filled with bottles. Is that true or do you like get the bottle? Like, They're in boxes. They're in boxes, okay. <laughs> Do you, but, you like have them shipped to the class? Of course, or? of course, of course. Okay. When I do the course in Japan, I procure them myself. However, when I do it in the United States, I get cooperation from a wide range of organizations. When I do a course in a particular city in the United States, I'll try and procure the sake locally. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense to say, this is a great representative of Yamada Nishiki rice, but you can't get it. It doesn't help anybody, yeah. right? So I try to use local stuff as much as possible. There's just a few things that I just can't get in the United States that are core to me teaching that course. So I have to bring, I don't know, half a dozen varieties from Japan. Oh, wow. Is, does those include like the Nama style? Of like course. The, the Namas are always going to be better, fresher, uh, as fresh as possible. So I bring those from, from Japan. How? Oh, I've got a case. I mean, there's a okay. wine, it's called a wine cruiser. They're basically suitcases designed for carrying wine. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. They're great. When you come back <clears> to Japan, is there like a particular place that you always come back to like a particular bar or... So I do travel a lot overseas. And when I come back, I don't really tend to go out to a particular restaurant right away. Usually I'll be at home. I did develop a custom of ordering sushi delivered to my house the night I get back uh, for no reason. I've just been doing it for 25 years. <laughs> uh, in terms of a sake that I particularly go for, a sake pub, not really. Uh, I'll probably have some sake when I get home. Almost invariably, I'll have some sake when I get home. But there isn't a particular place I'll go, a particular style that I try to get. Uh, whatever's around, and I have plenty laying around, so that's that's not a problem. How how many, if you feel comfortable, how many bottles like do you have at your house? <laughs> Probably fifty. Oh wow! At one time. Oh wow! Probably. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. I move lot. through them. I mean, you know, some I'll drink, some I'll share, mm -hmm. some I'll gift. Yeah. And some I'll torture. Okay. In other words, once in a while, something gets a little bit too old. And instead of forcing it to drink, forcing myself to drink it when I'm not ready, I'll experiment. I'll leave it in the refrigerator for another year on purpose to see mm -hmm. what happens. Does that ever end up good? Yes. Very often it ends oh, up really? good. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you got, it helps to know a bit about sake. If I know what the rice is, if I know who made it, if I know what style it is, right? I'm not, I'm not haphazard about it. I've got a feel for what will be nicer. And, and after about how long? And then I'll just lay it down. And, and, you know, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it goes beyond the point of no return. But sometimes I'm genuinely extremely pleased with what has happened. So we did we did two episodes with Riedel and Riedel Glassware. Yeah. And your name came up a couple times. Yeah, I've worked with them on a number of projects in a number of capacities. Yeah. What was that like? Well, when 
I worked with Riedel to develop a Diaginzo glass. Riedel didn't really have a ton of contacts, some, but not that many in the industry. So I kind of helped them put together a tasting panel. I contact, they, they knew a lot of people actually, but they had me contact a number of brewers that I knew well and a number of other people in the industry and just gather the people. Uh, and then we went through the tasting iterations. It was brilliant. It was great to participate. It really was. Uh, I learned a lot about how those things should properly be done. <laughs> yeah, I'm really behind what they're doing, I must admit. As I remember, they said they went through like 60 different glasses or something at least, like that? At least. But the first, at the, at the beginning, they go through the first bunch of them quickly. Oh, okay. It's like, oh, that ain't going to work. Oh, that ain't going to work. That ain't going to work. And then, they, and then they get down to, it's going to be a shape somewhat like this. Yeah. And then they maybe have, I don't know, a dozen of those shapes, so they're all they're, they're close to white wine glasses. Mm-hmm. So they get the big ones, the obvious mismatches, the ones that aren't going to work. They get that out of the way fairly quickly, but then they really focus on those last dozen and the last half dozen. And at the end, it's really precise. Yeah, you know, I can't even visually tell, barely tell the difference between half a dozen glasses, and they have ten judges in five parts of the country. Wow, uh, it might have been twelve judges in three, but the yeah. point is, a large a number lot. of people in several places in several locales doing these tastings and focusing down on which one glass is the best. And the Daiginjo glass that they selected was the clear favorite. I remember Wolfgang Angel saying, wow, this is really, really clearly standing out in terms of what everybody in every group thinks. Did you get glasses? Of course. I mean, not a ton. I got one. You got one? <laughs> you didn't even get two? Well, yeah. You come across these things from time to time. You know. <laughs> Just I've pick got, them up. I've probably got four or five right now. I'm not exactly sure where they yeah. came from. but. <laughs> are you a, are you more of a wine glass guy or an ochoco guy? Ochoco guy, really. Yeah. Actually, more than anything else, I use a kiki joko, a big white one. Oh, with the blue. Yeah, not because of the blues there, but that's what the, the toji use. That's what the brewers use around the brewery to taste. It's good enough for them. It's good enough for me. When sense. I'm tasting seriously, I like to use those. Yeah. If I want to taste a sake I've not had before or write about it, then I'll use one of those. Uh, if I'm drinking more informally, I'll use any one of dozens and dozens of nice ochoco that I have at home. Or guinomi, right? Mm-hmm. I do like Japanese powdery. Okay. I know that the Riedel Daiginjo glass will do a better job of focusing aromas and flavors, but the visual and tactile appeal of a nice piece of powdery just really enhances the sake experience. Do you like cold sake, hot sake? Oh, both? boy. Like both what? for sure. The older I get, the more I like warm sake. Interesting. Yeah, that's a trip, actually. Uh, at the beginning, I wasn't interested. And then, you know, somebody says, listen, kid, <laughs> a good sake is one you can enjoy warm and cold. And then you start to poke around. You check it. No, I really love warm sake. Do you have- but I still probably drink more slightly chilled. Room you- temperature is a great temperature, too. Oh, really? There's just so many. Yeah. <laughs> do you have, like, a particular temperature? I was recently No, no. That, like- I do it empirically, right? So I warm it, and I just keep tasting. Mm-hmm. After about half of the flask is gone, then I find the, the right temperature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got cool tools, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there's some good accoutrements out there. Oh, cool. Yeah, I use this big, heavy tin one. Oh. Uh, and it's it's really big and heavy, and you put it into a, uh, a pottery piece sleeve kind of a thing that has hot water in it. And what's cool about that is if you put room temperature sake into that thing, uh, you put fresh boiling water into it. It'll heat it not too hot. Only to, It won't overheat it oh. because all that tin absorbs the excess heat. Oh, that's And really then cool. it maintains that temperature for a long time. Oh, that's really interesting. It's making me want to drink some warm sake right now just talking about it. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Do you – you're, you're very much a sake guy. Do you ever stray from the path and drink like shochu or awamori or something like that? No. I mean I don't – not seriously. You know, I'll taste it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I like beer. I drink a good amount of beer. 
but I don't uh, go drinking shochu or anything like that. Curiously, I really like awamoni. Oh, really? Like it's the only. Dis- I don't like distilled beverages in general, mm-hmm. but awamoni is like the only distilled beverage I actually enjoy. Oh, that's interesting. But you know, one one liver seven days a week, something's got to go, and that's the distillates. I tend to stick yeah. with sake and a little beer. Not much wine. No, not much at all. And again, I don't dislike wine. I just don't naturally end up reaching out for it. It can be great, you know. If, if, if once in a while I drink it, maybe a couple times a month or something, but not very often. Mm-hmm. Mostly just sake and beer. Okay. What What has been like a weird sake experience? Like, what's a What's your weirdest sake? I memory? can tell you that. Yeah. So there are national sake competitions every year, um, and there's a particular contest that's run by a quasi-government organization and the National Research Institute of Brewing is behind it. And it's basically a blind tasting of Daiginjo on steroids. Very, very aromatic stuff. And I've actually been a judge in the finals for that too, but uh, almost every year I'll go to the uh, open tasting where people in the industry can go and, and taste all the sake that have won awards and not won awards. Mm-hmm. It changes from time to time. But obviously you can't, I mean, there's 800 sake there, right? You can't swallow. You got to spit, Obviously. So they have basically long tables upon which the sake is set right next to each other. Uh-huh. And everybody lines up and tastes and moves on to the next one. And there's spittoons set in the middle. So in other words, two rows of people will share the same spittoon, right? Mm-hmm. So at one tasting, I'm walking along, tasting, spitting, tasting, spitting, tasting, spitting. And I took a glass and I put too much into my mouth. I was just like, I got too much in here. I have to spit half of it out. So I bent down and spat half of it out. And withdrew my head back up to inhale and mix it up with the air and taste it again. And I'm thinking, ah, this is ridiculous. There's 800 sake. I can spit the rest of this one out. So I stuck my head down again toward the spittoon to spit again. Well, the guy on the other side was timing me. He saw my head go down, my head come up, and he said, this is my chance. And he spat right as I put my head down into the stream of expectorated sake. And it got all into my hair. (laughs) A gold prize-winning Daiginja was all over my head. Oh, man. What do you do? What do you do in that situation? Like, just like be like, oh, so you must in and bow? Do I don't do? know who felt worse, but it wasn't his fault. I'll tell you that much. So I just went to the bathroom, got out a rag, and wiped it dry as best I could, and then went back to tasting. Oh, man. Wow. Oh. I think he's still telling people about that story, too, somewhere. Did you ever, like, did you get his name or anything? No, or? no, no. We no? moved on. Ah, <laughs> Maybe he listens to the podcast one time. Yeah. <laughs> <You might. laughs> Have him tell the story. Yeah. That was probably the most curious story, most curious thing that ever happened yeah. to me. Yeah, that's, that's something. That's a good story. The other thing I did once is I was in a, at a, a nomia, uh, a, a sake bar, a sake yeah. pub in Shunjuku one time. And I was talking to the, to the owner and the, pe- the person that ran it. And he came out and he handed me one sake. Yeah. And he said, what do you think? I tasted it, put it down. And I said, it's this, isn't it? He said, he he almost, he couldn't believe I actually nailed it out of 24 different thousand thousand different products. However, I used logic. Yeah. I knew it was a particular style called a Yamaha. I looked Uh at everything he had in the shelf. I said, okay, he buys his sake through this particular route, which means it's going to be this and not this. So I use logic more than my palate. Yeah. It was still fun. No, that's that's <laughs> cool. That's really impressive. So that so that makes it sound like you know like distributors. Yeah, I guess I do. Like you can you can kind of guesstimate, oh, this is what they have available. Yeah, to them. but that's not that hard. I mean Really? You hang out in the industry, you know who carries what. Brewers can use multiple distributors, but they don't really that often. Oh really? Yeah, they oh, can. It's not like that like it's not like it is in the United States. Why would a brewery stay with just one distributor? If they've done a great job and they're supplying you very well, why would you go behind their back or why would you take business away from them? 
throughout that continue to do their best for you, then you'll uh, you'll you'll go through them. So actually, you see a lot of brewers come out with a second brand for the explicit purpose of going directly to retailers because they don't want to stab the distributor in the back. Oh, <laughs> oh interesting. Nice yeah. And you can do that. You can do that. So like the actual brewery and the distributors are really like, they're really tight. Well, they work well together. Most of them do most of the time. Oh, that's really interesting. Have there been like events that if you were to talk about with other people who have been in the industry as long as you have that you're like, oh, remember that year when so-and-so and so-and-so like kind of went at it? Is there anything like that? Is there infighting in the sake industry or is it Certainly not Certainly really? there's infighting, but you know, people move on, right? And there's rumors. You hear about this or that. Uh, I myself, I'm not so much into the politics or the infighting. I got tons of stuff to do. No matter how you slice it, at the end of the day, I'm not a member of the industry. <laughs> so I've got no business talking politics or, or, or dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear stuff and I'm just not that interested. Yeah. What has been your most favorite thing to do with sake in your life? Like out of all of the various projects that you've done, what was the thing that was like, oh man, this is it. I've really, I've really hit my stride with like, this is what I love doing. I just want to keep doing this. At the end of the day, I guess I would say it's writing. Uh, I like to speak. I like to talk about sake. I like to do presentations and things like that. Um, but interestingly, I never considered myself to be a writer. I wasn't particularly interested in it. In college, I did well in English and things like that, but I like, didn't have the drive or the motivation. But once I started writing about sake, I just found a rhythm. And sometimes I sit back and I'm like, wow, that was cool. I, like, like a lot of people say, I don't really write it. It's just the muses do, right? Yeah. Something comes out. But look, I've been writing about sake since 94, right? That's 25 years. <laughs> and people say, is there that much to say about it? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> There's always something more to say about it. There's always one more angle you can present, one more story you can write about. Uh, so at the end of the day, I guess I probably enjoy that aspect of my work more than anything else. And the tasting that leads to the writing is also a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Um, I do love visiting breweries and talking to brewers just to find out what's behind it. Everything from the technical aspects of it to their passion about it and the philosophies behind it. That's always fascinating. So that's something I really, really enjoy doing as well. Do you have like a particular writing process? Like, are you very regular? Like wake up, sit down at the desk at like nine or something? No, but neither do I wait to the last minute. Okay. I'm pretty good about not waiting to the last minute, but I don't, uh, I'm not that disciplined of a writer. When I know it's got to happen soon or else I will be pushing the deadline, I'll sit down and I usually write a quick outline or ask myself, what do I actually want to say? What's my main point here? And then I can fill in all the meat around that uh, and then polish it and make it a presentable, readable document uh, later on. Gotcha. That's kind of the process that I use. Do you, do you listen to music while you write? No, or? I can't. No, I can't listen to music and think. Seriously, it's a drag. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I like music. But it's either one or the other. I either listen to the music and tap my feet, or I can tap into a creative process and write. I can't do both. All right. Do you have a... This is like a weird question. But They've all been weird, Frank. I'm used to it by now. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you... like? Is there a particular song that you connect with sake drinking or a particular type of music that's kind of like sake, like your sake drinking music? I don't want to say no, but the answer is no. Uh, what would I say? I would probably say The Grateful Dead. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I listened to them a lot when I was in college. Uh, and they get on these long, rambling jams where one thing leads to another, and everything is relevant and irrelevant at the same time. 
And that kind of reminds me of sake. In other words, there's nothing clear going on in the music, but at the same time, all the musicians are in perfect sync. And, and, and sake is that way. It's kind yeah. of hard to put your finger on exactly why you like it. <laughs> and if, you're, if you actually have to go define the actual flavors involved, it's a chore. It's a process. But if you put the whole thing together, it's extremely enjoyable. That's kind of like sake is like the jam band of alcohol. The long jam band, because you yeah. can work your way through a bottle and different aspects of the sake will present itself at different moments in time throughout you, throughout as you're working through the bottle or even a glass. Yeah. That's super cool. And a bunch of little aspects tie in together to give you a long, big package uh, that's extremely enjoyable. Oh, that's awesome. When you, when you go out to drink sake, so like when you're going out to a restaurant, are you usually going to like sit down places? Are you going to like, like the Japanese, like touching on me, the standing bars, or like, do you go to a sake bar, or do you, go, you usually eat it with food? Well, sake bars all have food. Okay. Right? I don't do tachinomiya so much. They're oh, really? fun. There's one at Shibashi Station I wanted to stop in on the way here, but I didn't. <laughs> and it'll be too late to stop in on the way back. But, I don't know. Uh, but tachinomiya are fun. But I guess more often than not, I go to a nice place that has a wide range of sake and whose food I trust. Mm-hmm. And is sake like a very much like sake and food kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Sake and food are so intrinsically linked. A better way to answer that is they're both so much better with the other. What What is your favorite type of food to eat with sake? <laughs> Chimmi. In other words, very dense, strong, salty flavored things. Okay. And there's a gazillion of them in Japan. They're usually related to pickled fish guts. <laughs> but they're extremely enjoyable it's just a little bit with sake yep that's as good as it gets actually that's all I need obviously you need a bit, something a bit more substantial if you want to continue walking straight but if you just sit me down with a handful of sake and some pickled fish guts uh, things like that I'm, I'm in heaven yeah all right. it's another thing that makes me want to go drink right now well <laughs> well, we can do that um, that's, that's all my questions so do you have anything that you wished I had asked or want to tell me? No, not really. I, I guess I would add this. I'll let you guys decide whether to leave it in. Leave it, leave it in. It's shameless self-promotion. Uh, so my most recent project is a new sake newsletter. In other words, I've been writing a newsletter for, for, I don't know, 15 years or longer. Monthly, published, every month. But I just started something called the Sake Industry Newsletter. And I had been thinking about this for a long time. If you were to talk to somebody in another country that sold French wine, and if you say, okay, who are the top 10 Bordeaux, Bordeaux producers? They would say, boom, 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 boom. They know them all, right? They know everything or a lot about the industry making the beverage that they're selling, even though that interest is in another country. Uh, but we don't have that connection with the, with the sake industry yet, right? Everybody's still talking about what Junmai is or what Daiginjo is or this or that, but they really don't have a connection knowing who the brewers are or what changes or what trends are happening. And so I started this newsletter to connect people around the world with what's going on in the, in the, uh, in the sake industry in Japan. And I'm quite excited about it. Uh, you can go to my website and find more information about it there. But the sake industry newsletter is my most recent project and one that I'm pretty excited about. And it's, and it's doing that exact thing, right? It's like Yeah, well, it, interestingly, I mean, this is off on a tangent, but we, I hired like three people to work with me on this. And we decided we had to, if you do this, you got to do it right. I mean, you got to publish on time, right? Mm -hmm. And you got to know who's doing what and everybody's strengths and weaknesses are. So we did, uh, we talked about it and not what I wanted and things like that. And then we did four practice issues that were, everything had to be on time as if they were real. 
Uh, and then the, the first real issue came out October 1st, Sake Day. Uh, so it'll be out in the 1st and the 15th of every month. And uh, and so far, so good. <laughs> and, and it's exclusively in English, I assume? Yeah, it is exclusively in English. I, uh, yeah. No plans for Spanish or French? No, nah, I probably won't get around to those. Not for another couple of decades. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. That might happen in the long run. but Very cool. Thank you so much. My pleasure, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you guys soon again. And that will wrap it up for one more episode of Sake on Air. If you would like to follow along with us on social media, you can track us down at, at Sake on Air on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please do send your questions, thoughts, inquiries, feelings about the show to questions at sakeonair.com. If you find yourself with a moment and could leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store or whatever streaming service you're, it is that you're using, please do. It would be greatly appreciated. The show, as always, is made possible with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. And, well, until all this madness happened, was generally recorded at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. We will definitely let you know when that place is back in business. Until next time, come by. <laughs>